0: Demystifying Cisco's software defined access, starting with Cisco's TrustSec with Mike McPhee, episode nine. Welcome back, nerds, geeks, and Ziglets, for another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real world context around technology. I'm Michael Ziga, also known as Zig in the community, and I'm your host. Hey, Ziglets. Welcome back. It's a uh, Zig here once again. And, um, for, I'm really excited for today's show, to start that off. Um, today's show, we, we really start the process of demystifying Cisco's software-defined access, or SDA. And we're going to dedicate this show to understanding or hopefully clearing the mud and the FUD around Cisco's TrustSec, which is a key component in software-defined access. And um, at a high level, it is the policy engine behind software-defined access. With me today is a good friend, a good colleague of mine, um, good study partner, um, Mike McPhee from Cisco. He is a published author. Um, him and I met last year while we while I was studying for the CCDE certification, and we got a chance to meet last year at Cisco Live, and um, great guy. Uh, I'm really, really excited to welcome him to the show. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we shouldn't get our names wrong, right?
1: Uh, Absolutely, I think this is probably be the easiest call I've had all day.
0: (laughs) Outstanding. Well, thanks for joining. Um, Do you want to tell a little bit um, about yourself to the audience?
1: Yeah, sure. My name is Mike McVee. I'm a commercial territory systems engineer, uh, working in pre-sales and helping consult customers. Uh, Considered a generalist, uh, but uh, for the most part, in the last three years, I've been concentrating on helping customers with their security and their route switch. Side of things and, and leaving the collab to somebody else, um, but uh, it's been a fun, uh, been a fun few years here with Cisco, and uh, really been digging in and excited to talk to you about all this uh, fun stuff around TrustSec.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining. I really appreciate it. So yes, our topic today is uh, Cisco TrustSec, and we're going to hopefully uh, get through all the the mud and <laughs> the advertisement out there and really see what TrustSec <laughs> is all about. So,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Um. So, just gonna dive right in. Um. High level summary. Now, you have designed a number of Cisco TrustSec kind of deployments, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah, we're starting to see uh, some pretty good adoption and uptake here with customers as they're running into uh, greater, you know, regulatory constraints or customer requirements that are pushing them towards segmentation. And I think as most people who, who've been, you know, working in networking and looking at the security aspects of things realize is we've got this sort of catch-22, which is that, you know, the U.S. CERT and a lot of other organizations keep recommending that people segment more, uh, that they get more granular with their segmentation. But with the traditional way of segmenting through VLANs or DACLs or or even, you know, at at the extreme firewalls and and, and security gateways and stuff like that, uh, that management overhead, that burden just blows up and uh, does not scale well. And, uh, you know, Probably the the biggest knock against that sort of approach is that uh, you know it becomes uh, very static and hard to manage. So TrustSec is really meant to help answer those issues, help answer the the mail here while addressing those issues and and ease the customer's burden from a workload perspective.
0: Well, that's great. That's a great kind of summary of the technology that we're going to discuss today, um, and the the aspects that you have uh, designed the solutions for customers to deploy. Um, let's uh, kind of go over some of the high level business requirements, constraints, and drivers that uh, the businesses of today would have to deploy TrustSec versus a you know maybe another NAC solution or even just traditional ICE.
1: Yeah, I mean, typically, what we're looking at is is something drives them towards it. Uh, nobody really decides that they need to do segmentation for fun. Um, so usually, there's some sort of, you know, there's some sort of granularity that's required by, you know, one of their end customers or you know within the vertical that they're in. Uh, the two verticals that I've worked the most with on trust sec designs tend to be in the financial side of things. So you know, credit unions, uh, insurers, stuff like that, and certainly within healthcare. And um, you know, in both of those cases. You know, their i t staffs aren't necessarily a a big you know profit center. Um, so they're not you know typically staffed as as much as a a larger enterprise would be. And so they're looking for something that would actually allow them to get very granular with their segmentation, but without all the overhead they typically ran into. And so that's you know that's kind of you know one of the pieces here. Uh, that drives them to it, and usually, um, if if it's a customer pull where they're asking us to talk about it, that's usually where this comes out of. They they hear about it, they want to get around the marketing buzz, and understand what the deals are. You know what the deal is with it.
0: No, that that was great. Um, so I mean, if you could uh, explain a little bit. The more, like the, the business drivers, like if I was, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about different verticals. I think finance and healthcare and whatnot. But like, I mean, is it like a compliance driver?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're starting to see that um, from a business driver perspective with the uh, PCI industry, for instance. Uh, everybody that's involved in taking payments uh, and, and using credit cards and processing those payments, you know, complies with what everybody knows as PCI DSS. And uh, it's a, it really just a payment card industry, um, you know, standard as far as how things are handled. Well, when you read that, it's full of business requirements. It's got very little to do with the actual technical implementation, which in a, in a way is nice. They kind of uh, leave it up to, you know, interpretation so that you can pick the solutions that work best for you. But it's very structured around the the rigor uh, of a company or a customer's um you know, change process and their security review process and the visibility that they have into their environment. Well, as a lot of our financial institutions, you know, or even, um, you know, retail shops or anybody that's, you know, taking payments uh, looks at these requirements, they start to realize that, you know, the segmentation required to maintain uh, a separation between the PCI data that that enclave and the rest of their stuff uh, really becomes pretty difficult to manage across multiple sites doesn't scale well all that good stuff and when you add in other things you know a lot of these people are, are understanding now that IOt is a big you know concern uh, we do have some utility customers that are you know that have requirements around maintaining separation between their SCADA networks and and what you know that industrial network that administers what's going on in the field whether it's pipelines or switch breaker you know switch boards and breakers or what have you and their user data so all of these things are, you know, coming from just a huge, you know, plethora of regulatory shops, and they're all trying to wrestle with the same problem, which is how do we keep, you know, this data separate from that data, and do so without breaking our necks to do, you know, to accommodate those needs.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're trying to segment the environment from a security perspective, but you're also trying to make sure the applications and the users can still function.
1: That's right, and, and what we typically find is is that if they're segmenting via another approach, the management overhead adds a lot of inertia that is really hard to overcome. So as you introduce, you know, as you scale out any of those segments, it's a very manual process to accommodate that scale. So if you're adding new servers to a Citrix pool to accommodate a bunch of VDI users, for instance, or if you're adding, um, you know, if you're onboarding a bunch of new operators for seasonal business, if you're, you know, online shop, Um, You know, we have a couple of customers that uh, do an extensive online, uh, you know, sales business, and and that's very much, you know, holiday peaks. And when they onboard those people, it can be a real pain in the butt to bring all those people into a call center, onboard them, get them accounts, and then provision, you know, their ports, uh, their laptops, all that good stuff, so that they're able to accommodate uh, those people without, you know, forcing a lot of work on the help desk or, or the IT staff. So there's a lot of different reasons people need to get into something that helps them manage that segmentation, uh, you know, more smartly. I, I guess it's a, I'm butchering the English language here, but there's uh, a, there's it's a work smarter, not harder type of approach, and that's really what TrustSec is after.
0: So one of my biggest concerns with segmentation is um, from again, I work obviously from a VAR perspective, but as a customer, segmentation is kind of an unknown item um, in terms of like, I don't have any idea what my applications are actually doing. Um, you know, if we have like a, t- a three-tier application model, you have an app server, web server, and a database server. I don't. I honestly have no idea what they actually are doing. So in my experience like deploying ICE and, and just a, as a background for the show and for the audience, I, I probably deploy Cisco Identity Services um, about 50 to 75 percent of my day job is to do something with Identity Services Engine or ICE. Um, okay. So, you know, really understanding the applications flow and the user data flow um, or the the data patterns, let's say, of the environment are the key issues that I see from a customer perspective when they need to segment um, their environment.
1: Right, right. So that's so when you look at TrustSec, TrustSec is really focused on. That um, it's it's a group based or group based policy control, where instead of using those downloadable downloadable ACLs or some a priori knowledge of what's going on or or relying uh, too extensively on each access port to do everything, you're characterizing the devices as they land on the network, and these are end user devices. You're characterizing them and assigning them with tags. They're kind of like a, a swipe badge or something that you might wear, you know, around your belt or around your neck. That gets you into some doors and not others. And, um, you know, that that's what you're handing the packets. Now, on the application side, there certainly needs to be an understanding of, of what sorts of applications are running and who needs access to that. And that's certainly part of the, the um, you know, high and, and mid-level design activities that you might be conducting. Because those tags, uh, you know, that the, the badge readers, if you will, that you're putting on each of those applications are, are statically assigned inside the data center. So, you know, with the Nexus 7K or 1K platforms, for instance, they can support TrustSec uh, through static tags or or SXP assigned tags, if you will. And we can get into that a little bit later. But um, really, you have to have knowledge as to what applications are running in order to be able to decide who's going to be getting that. But I would say that's the same no matter what sort of segmentation approach you're using, uh, whether it's the traditional means or, or otherwise. And, and we certainly have tools, you know, that work with Identity Services Engine, which kind of acts as the the trust second, you know, uh, keystone here. Uh, things like Stealthwatch can certainly help you characterize data across the network. Uh, people who are doing extensive, you know, app development. You know, Cisco has solutions like uh, App Dynamics uh, or, or uh, Tetration, both of which can really help characterize that. If you need help with it, uh, but most of the time, it's just going through that high and low-level design of the network and understanding what applications are there helps you sort that out. And helps you understand what you need to do from an SGT perspective in the data center to accommodate what you were just talking about.
0: Now, that process of uh, determining the the segmentation, that's more from a, like you, I think you mentioned it, from a, a user endpoint perspective than an actual server perspective. That's like, um, I'm just trying to make sure I understand this. So, um, mm-hmm. is that like a finance, financial user versus an HR user? Is that a good that,
1: analogy? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's usually based on the role. Um, but when you look at what we can use to to, to really differentiate between different types of endpoints, uh, you, certainly the Active Directory credentials are a big part of that. But you can also use all your traditional profiling and posture assessment tools as well to help you understand that. So if you know Mike Ziga, you know solutions architects coming in, and he's coming in with his you know his employer you know employer owned laptop, we can give you a certain SGT that gives you whatever unfettered access you're entitled to. But if you're coming in with a BYOD device, same credentials but slightly different, you know, posture or, or confidence in that endpoint, we can assign a different SGT that will, uh, you know, like end up reducing your access or end up not opening as many of those doors as, as maybe your full-up access would. So very similar to what you do with VLANs and, and DACLs, but just doing it through a central repository in ICE, and allowing ice to go out and configure all of that for you.
0: Now, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the technical understanding of TrustSec in a minute, but I, I do have a, so at a high level, um, running TrustSec and the, uh, what did you call it? Um, the SGTs, what does that stand for again?
1: So, yeah, if I, if I back up a little bit, uh, so SGTs are secure group tags. So that's a little shim tag that we put in, uh, to one of those vendor fields inside a layer two frame. And that allows us to characterize, um, and, and apply a tag that can still be passed uh, by by your infrastructure. And then what we have is, um, you know, that tag is that classification. So it's very very akin to what you do with quality of service where you classify and then you enforce. And the enforcement's done by, we, by what we call a secure group access control list, an SGACL. And so we'll classify at the edge wherever the endpoint is attaching and and give them an SGT, and then that SGT, as it as it goes through the network, will allow it to go past some SG ACLs and not others, and that's how we're able to restrict the access.
0: But an SGT is just like uh, a downloadable ACL, and well, maybe maybe not like it, but it
1: the SG ACL and the downloadable ACL uh, look very similar. The okay. SGT is just a tag, yeah. Yep. Okay.
0: All right. Um, so some of the kind of drivers and um, constraints and requirements that, that we might have uh, kind of gone over or, or missed, let's say. Let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. So some of the uh, business requirements, constraints, and drivers that we haven't gotten to yet, um, what about like a CapEx and OpEx concerns? Are there any of those?
1: Uh, well, absolutely. So there's, uh, there's certainly a little bit of uh, lift no matter what type of NAC solution you're putting in, in place. Network access control by its very nature can be disruptive. Uh, so whether it's a Cisco solution or, or or any of the competing solutions out there, you know there is, uh, you know there is some upfront services engagement, and that tends to far outweigh what the actual equipment or or software cost would be. Um, but uh, typically on the back end, um, we see a, a tremendous savings in OpEx over doing things with a traditional segmentation approach, and the reason being is just because as you're spending a lot less time in change windows touching multiple points in the network and you're doing all of your changes in a single uh, single pane of glass really within Identity Services Engine. And that can reduce a lot of your configuration errors. It can ensure consistency uh, with how you deploy policies. And when you do all of that and now you've got all that uh, control in one place as well as the visibility that Identity Services Engine brings to this, makes it much easier to troubleshoot. Uh, so we find that you get, you know, reduced outage times, uh, reduced frequency of outages and, uh, you know, much better uptime and, and reliability uh, than if you were doing things hop by hop and having to hand jam all of that code across all those different points within the network.
0: Yeah, onto that point, specifically OPEX, I've done a, a couple of uh, a few ICE deployments in my time and um, a lot of those ICE deployments, I'm reducing the number of, let's say, ACLs or, or uh Statically defined ACLs that are applied on all the network devices themselves, where like an organization, let's just say like a, a, a school district, a K through 12, that's fairly decent in size, um, and they have an ACL that's different, that's applied on every router in their school district to isolate um, guest access, or maybe they're doing some sort of segmentation for whatever reason. And I've been, with with Identity Services Engine specifically, and not TrustSec, but with ICE, been able to bring all of those ACLs into one ACL or two ACLs inside of ICE, and now they have a single point of management, and now they don't have to go all these 50, 60 devices and make a change when they they need to make a change. So I I totally get the OPEX um, uh, the, the OPEX um, benefit here with the solutions, both ICE and TrustSec. Um Are there any like, oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, I mean, that's a great point you just brought up and, and, and shame on me for not uh, elaborating on it. But, you know, when you look at any, you know, almost any uh, infrastructure out there, you walk into a customer, it's very unlikely that they know what every ACE, you know, what every access control entry in an ACL is doing. And there's a lot of volatility in environments. Very, you know, you don't run into customers where they're not changing things on a weekly or monthly basis at, at a minimum. And so there's always a lot of cleanup that doesn't happen. You know, things get, you know, very rarely somebody got the time to just go through and check ACLs all day. They all have day jobs. And so it's really important uh, to mention that with that centralized deployment, whether it's with TrustSec or even with a more traditional employment, you know, deployment with ICE as, as the centerpiece here, you can main, you know, maintain those ACLs, deploy them as needed, and then pull them back and clean up after uh, when the endpoint moves or when the server is decommissioned. And so that's a really important thing here because those, those ACL entries, those uh, those you know appendix-like ACL entries that just sit there and nobody knows what they do, they're all security holes, and they all add volatility to the environment, and they can all come back to bite you you know, months or, or years down the road. So that's a really good point you brought up there, and another way that we can reduce OpEx and, and risk.
0: Yeah, that, that's one of the benefits I've been able to, to get customers to, to see and to really utilize. Again, it's it's ICE. We're not deploying TrustSec, right? But um, it would be the same thing with TrustSec as well. Is that we'd be able yep. to isolate those those rules right down from a, a number of rules that you're you're. Statically defining to one or two or, or a smaller subset of rules that now you're you're defining and you're only defining inside ICEs GUI and not on the actual devices themselves. It just saves time and, and effort and, and managing the the ACL itself. Um, Absolutely. Changes. Yep. So um, as as we go down, um, some of the other things I wanted to to ask was so the solutions that you've designed um, does does this solution itself kind of go with like growth and scale?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as with any infrastructure, you know, those are your big concerns. What we, here's what we can afford now, but here's what we have to accommodate in the future. And with SGTs um, and, and SG ACLs in place as your primary mode of, of, you know, detecting, classifying, and then enabling access control, what that allows you to do is it allows you to grow and scale uh, almost at will. Once you have the infrastructure in place, you can add secure groups, um, you know, as needed. Uh, to scale with your environment, um, you know, as, as new users or new servers are added, uh, they they simply inherit the privileges that are granted, you know, via their their profile or their group within Active Directory or LDAP. And so, you know, all of that stuff um, allows you to to add servers, move servers, change, you know, endpoint behaviors, um, bring on and onboard new employees or contractors or vendors. Very easily. And it works across all the different workflows that you typically have in network, you know, network access control. Uh, so guest and BYOD, uh, VPN access, wireless, it, it really all of them can benefit from this. And it's a nice single point of, uh, of management here for the entire policy and, and access control.
0: Yeah. So on that point, um, I mean, I'm assuming that there could be maybe a, a split brain situation, depending on how you build the, the HA within uh, TrustSec.
1: Uh, that is a possibility, right? I mean, certainly, um, you know, for geographically dispersed environments, uh, you're heavily encouraged to have servers placed at you know each of your at your major data centers, and that's a matter of a, a design preference. We see different partners uh, go with different approaches there, um, and there's different ways that you can accommodate HA and and failure conditions. So, you know, we have people that deploy it out to branches. I've got a financial that not only has servers at both their primary and their backup HQ slash data centers, uh, but they actually implement ICE out to the branch level uh, or TrustSec out to the branch level. And in those cases where that branch has severed ties, right, maybe they're not able to reach either data center, they've got a service provider outage, there are mechanisms within the switching and and wireless side of things that allow you to fall back to a, a local mode or to use cached credentials and uh, secure group characteristics in order to maintain access uh, while you're returning to service. So there's, uh, you know, but it, the that's a whole big topic there as to how you deploy. We've got customers anywhere from two servers all the way up in, in just in my territory all the way up to 12 servers. Um, I think Cisco, we, we've done a Cisco on Cisco where we talk about our ICE deployment. I think we're at currently 40 servers within our uh, you know, corporate environment. Wow. So it, it really scales out, uh, tremendously, but it provides a lot of, uh, resiliency, uh, both server to server and within the way we assign roles to the servers, as well as to, you know, how we're able to use the infrastructure in a pinch when the servers are unavailable. So we should be able to accommodate, uh, pretty much any use case you can think of.
0: So that's interesting that you mentioned a couple things there. Um, the question I have is: You're actually, I mean, again, this is going into the Cisco solution for Cisco, like ICE and TrustSec deployed for mm-hmm. the Cisco environment. You guys are actually uh, assigning SGDs to the actual servers.
1: I uh, uh, I was talking about servers with the um, the ICE servers in the in the you know oh, past gotcha. couple minutes there, uh, but we do ask we we do actually assign SGTs to the access ports that hosts attach to. Um, and in the case of deploying things like the Nexus 1000 V, our software-defined Nexus switch, uh, we're able to actually assign them at the virtual, um, you know, adapter, virtual NIC level as well so that individual workloads, guest OSs on a host are able to receive their own SGTs and we're able to enforce, um, you know, based on that. Um, so, we, you know, really when we look at what an SGACL is, it replaces the IP addresses than in a traditional access control list with tags. And so, you know, this tag, you know, this endpoints tag can go to this server's tag uh, using these, you know, particular ports or services. It's it's very similar. And once you get, you know, once you get past that, you understand that what we're doing is, is we're reusing a lot of what people have been doing already. We're just making it more scalable by centrally managing it and allowing ICE to assign, uh, you know, the detailed tag numbers uh, while we just worry about what the intent is. And that gets us to... Where Cisco is really trying to go with a lot of our segmentation approaches, which is you convey the intent, and that intent is carried out by identity services engine or whatever the policy engine is, uh, and conveyed to the rest of the infrastructure so that it's upholding your intent uh, with the best possible, uh, you know, service level agreement and and results.
0: All right. So you're talking about like intent intent based networking there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we you know this was uh, software refined access control before SDN was all the rage, right? So, you know, we're really trying to get, you know, away from having people, man, you know, really micromanage their access control and to turn it over so that you can allow something like ICE to scale. I mean, we have uh, probably a quarter million BYOD devices um, that come and go across Cisco's own corporate network, you know, in a given month. and wow. And we manage all of that through, our identity services engine deployment. you know we're an 80,000 employee company. Uh, ICE is you know in full use, fully deployed across the entire entire uh, enterprise. Okay. and that, and that's how we scale. We're able to do that because we're leveraging ICE and it's at work smarter, not harder. Sort of mentality.
0: Well, you're you're doing it based on a policy engine. You're doing intent based, like you said. I mean, that that's you could see this happening with any NAC solution. For the most part, that it's becoming more of a policy driven approach, central policy, and you're really getting what what's the end state? What do we care about? Everything being not how we get there.
1: Right, right, yeah, and and you're right. It's something that you know really applies to you know all of the solutions in this space. Um, But really, when you're looking at it, you know, taking it a little bit further and touching less equipment you know less hands on equipment re- you know reduces the number of uh, potential misconfigurations or uh, you know fat finger sorts of things and uh, really enhances the the uh, resiliency of the network so by centralizing all this uh, through trustsec uh, we're really just taking that that extra step for our customers
0: um can so great information um i think i would like to start getting into maybe some of the deployment um Designs that, that you have done, um, and, and the reasons behind them. So, um, maybe let's start asking some questions. Um, have you done a greenfield deployment at all? Uh,
1: not one yet. I, uh, yeah, that's the kind of the unicorn in my space. Um, <laughs> we're not around a whole lot of metros with the uh, big startup environments. So almost everybody that comes to the table and um, you know, eventually says, "Hey, we're going to give TrustSec a shot." has something else in place. And I think that's one of the great things about TrustSec is is that, you know, if you've got a traditional ACL and, and VLAN-based segmentation approach now, uh, TrustSec can work alongside that, it can be, a, you know, an additional level, if you will, um, but, uh, but it can also replace it. Um, so it's the kind of thing that we can really help people ease into it, uh, you know, deploy it in only a couple segments within their network, a couple VLANs maybe, uh, to assist with a particular problem of scale. And then once they see that, they tend to go through and replan the rest of the network so that they can use TrustSec at, at greater scale because they realize the operational benefits.
0: All right. So um, can we go into some of the examples that you have for Brownfield um, kind of deployment? I mean, maybe maybe they weren't just deployments, maybe they're migrations?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, pretty much uh, everything's been some level of migration um, from either just a static, you know, a static security Profile where they're not actually doing NAC, they're, they're hard coding. Uh, that, that's you know where a couple of our earlier implementations in, in my territory came from. And we, typically what, they're, what we're looking at is, is we're looking at places that are having trouble because they're running out of cam space, or TCAM space on their switches uh, because they've split up that TCAM table with so many VLANs. And then likewise, they're trying to figure out why they don't have trunks probably, properly configured or consistency site to site. different VLANs. What we'll typically do is we'll typically just ask for, you know, one of those VLANs or a handful of those VLANs to really act as the, you know, secure group access control test bed, if you will, the TrustSec test bed. And we'll go through and we'll implement TrustSec for a couple of their key use cases. It's very similar to doing a traditional ICE deployment. You know, give us a guess in BYOD. We'll take it from there. Once they see those benefits and they see that they're able to do all of the segmentation and achieve the separation that they want without incurring additional VLANs, then we'll typically start rolling it out to other production segments within the network. So that's the, that's, you know, kind of the, the old brownfield use case. Now we do have customers that have identity services engine deployed in a more traditional sense that have, uh, you know decided that they'd like to take the you know take the next step and go with the trust second you know deployment and in those cases what they're what they're typically doing is is they're really just going through and and running them concurrently you can when you're in identity services engine and configuring your your uh, authorization policies uh, you can very easily add multiple conditions there as a result so whereas you typically would assign an authorization profile that says, give me this VLAN and this DACL, right next to it you can say also you know, provide it with this tag. And so you can grow from there. You can allow the traditional segmentation to still be in place while you monitor and, and adjust what's going on with the trust sec implementation and then cut over simply by removing those uh, those old vestiges of your uh, your traditional authorization profiles.
0: All right. So that, that sounds like a good um, good migration strategy for your policies, kind of at a high level, like moving from one policy sub, subset within ICE um, to a TrustSec model, and then eventually moving the the policies that you have, the authorization rules and whatnot, um, getting rid of them or disabling them. Um, and then you'd be relying on your, your new trust rules that you have there. That's right, yep. So, when you go about designing a trustsec solution, what are the kind of the key points that that someone should keep in mind and, and really um, include it in the in the design?
1: Well, you know, like anything, um, you know, there is no free lunch, and unfortunately, not every switch uh, and router or, or firewall is able to support trustsec. So, working with your your account teams and your partners to to better understand. What, you know, what your environment's current state is and what you need to do in order to make a trust SEC ready uh, is a very important piece of of uh, planning for the future, whether you're doing trust SEC tomorrow or trust SEC, you know, six months from now. Um, you know, typically when we're looking, there's different things um, that need to be done. You know, there's certainly the classification, the propagation and the enforcement. Those are really, the you know, the three tenets of trust SEC. And the classification can be done on a pretty wide variety of things, but as far as enforcement goes, that's a smaller set. And so you're looking at 3560 and and 3750Xs and above, 3650s, 3850s, stuff like that uh, as points of enforcement. Uh, There are third-party switches and and wireless controllers that are starting to look at the open um, IETF draft standards that we've submitted and are starting to implement tenants of this. Um, But, you know, honestly, we haven't seen any uh, mixed vendor environments yet with TrustSec. Um, So that's, you know, that's something that certainly would need to be part of the discovery phase here. Okay. Um, Go ahead.
0: So you'd have like a discovery phase, and based on that discovery phase, or well, the outcome of the discovery phase would say, hey, these, this list of hardware that you have, either the version that you're running doesn't support it, like the model version doesn't yep. support TrustSack, or the actual version of iOS um, doesn't support TrustSec. You need to upgrade it.
1: Yeah, we have uh, extensive hardware compatibility lists uh, for each version of Identity Services Engine. Uh, that are actually pretty pretty nicely laid out, where they actually cover both the hardware, the software version, and which features of Identity Services Engine, including TrustSec and MaxSec, and all that good stuff, are supported for each of those levels. So as part of that, you know, as part of that designing and and pre planning audit, uh, you're probably going to go through with your with your partner, do an inventory, figure out you know, what needs to be done in order to get the infrastructure to some level of readiness to accept TrustSec as, as, you know, a segmentation approach.
0: Now, after going through that process, and if you have a number of devices that don't support TrustSec, maybe they're third-party devices, maybe they're just uh, older Cisco hardware that doesn't support TrustSec today, um, is there, can you still deploy TrustSec in that yeah, world? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And see a lot of that with uh, intermediary devices. Most of the most of the customers deploy TrustSec-ready um, access layers, you know, when they know that they're going towards that or if they've been using ICE for a while, they've, they've learned that they get a lot of value out of that. Uh, but sometimes you'll have distribution layer or you'll have, you know, even whole segments um, of the WAN that don't necessarily support that. And so we have a secure group exchange protocol, SXP as it's called, that actually, rather than relying on that shim tag that goes in the uh, custom attributes field of the packet, uh, will actually set up uh, connectivity between SXP listeners and speakers, so that they're able to communicate tags back and forth, and allow the packets that uh, would normally carry the tag with them to traverse that part of the network that does not support TrustSec. So it's really just kind of like you're tunneling the, uh, the you know the the capability across. Those unsupported devices, but the cool part about this is, is that's all handled by by uh, Identity Services Engine. That coordination between the SXP uh, speakers and listeners.
0: Oh, so that's an automatic like feature.
1: Yeah, I mean when you're de- when you're deploying as part of your templates, your, your switches, your routers, and, and anything else that supports TrustSec, it's a couple lines of code uh, to enable you know as, uh, the SXP protocol. And to establish that they're going to be using that for anybody that doesn't, you know, that isn't directly uh, associated or connected in that CTS tunnel, a Cisco TrustSec uh, tunnel uh, can't can't be established. And so they'll use SXP uh, automatically with ICE's help in establishing that to communicate tags back and forth.
0: Okay, so there, it doesn't limit the ability to deploy TrustSec if you have uh, a good amount of third-party hardware. Um, it could be any uh, other than Cisco hardware.
1: Right, right. So yeah, I mean, but ideally, you'd want uh, the device to be, yeah, you know, that that's doing the classification to be, you know, capable of that. Um, and then you'd want the enforcement, uh, you know, point. And that's going to have to be a TrustSec capable device. But almost everything in between, uh, we can work around. So. Okay. Yep.
0: That gives you some flexibility, though, too. In an environment that is a mixed environment, that isn't Fully Cisco or Fully Juniper or HP or whatever, um, yep. it gives you that flexibility to still run something like this. If you need that that segmentation um, for whatever your business requirement and constraint is, it gives you that, that level of flexibility to do that and not have to replace all your hardware day one.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, and especially now that third parties are starting to implement pieces of, of the TrustSec uh, open standards here, uh, we should start seeing that uh, you know we've even got more options to accommodate that even at the points of enforcement and classification. So that that's uh, going to be a big help to a lot of those mixed vendor in environments.
0: Now, um, at, a, at a high level, because I, I you, you said a couple things, and I just want to make sure that if I don't understand, I want to make sure that I give a chance to for you to break it down a little bit further. Um, it sounded like the SGT itself gets um, in a is put into a field in the data. Packet itself,
1: yeah, it's actually put into the header. Okay. Um, so if if you look at, um, yeah, let's see here, there's a custom, a custom attribute field that's in the in the layer three packet, and um, you know we'll put it in the Cisco custom attribute field so that it's able to pass through all of the TrustSec capable devices. They'll just pass it along. So it's carrying its credentials, and then as it exits um, a TrustSec supported environment. In transitions to one that is TrustSec unaware, if you will, then um, the device, you know, the, the device, the last device it hits typically uh, that supports TrustSec will act as a speaker and will communicate via TCP session to the listener, which is the first guy, you know, on the other side that understands TrustSec and say, hey, I'm sending a guy over. Here's his packet. You know, he's going to inherit this attribute when he gets there you know, please put it back in the packet. And so that's how we're able to hand off the trust sec uh, tags the the secure group tags, um, across that vendor neutral environment.
0: That's pretty cool. Actually. It is. How do you handle the, the ACLs that you mentioned earlier? I think the group ACLs or the SGT ACLs, I forget what terminology you used. Uh,
1: yeah, they're called secure group ACLs. So SG ACLs. And, um, and and SG ACLs are really pushed from Identity Services Engine down to your TrustSec enforcement capable devices.
0: Okay, so your access layer switches or something like that, yep. usually. Yep.
1: Yep. And and using the same exact mechanism you use for downloadable ACLs, uh, they're just pushing down the uh, secure group ACLs. As needed, and, and each of those devices, based on changes within the environment or based on some sort of periodic timer, will go back up and make sure that they have the most current representation of which tags belong with their associated devices and whether any SG ACL updates are required for any of the uh, you know points that they're supposed to be enforcing. And so that's that's how they're able to maintain that. Yep.
0: So there's not like a reference in the packet. I wasn't sure if there was like a reference in the packet or if it was more of a, a device-specific thing. So it has to be a TrustSec-capable um, device at the access layer, and that will get all the uh, SG ACLs or ACLs that will uh, enforce them at the access layer. Yep.
1: So so somebody has to classify the packet and give it a tag, and then that tag uh, is invoked within an ACL. It's that, instead of an IP address, it brings a tag. That tag allows it to go some places and not others. And so they can reside in different places. The classification can be done at your network edge, and the SG ACLs can be in, in, enforced on your Nexus 7K or your 1KV okay. um, in, inside your data center. Uh, it's just that that tag that the packet receives way out at the access layer um, will allow it to get through some parts or, and not others of the secure group ACLs uh, closer to you know the destination. Now, you can implement those closer to, you know, a lot of times people want to implement those secure group ACLs as close to the source as possible to reduce, you know, congestion and and overhead to the network. Uh, That's certainly possible. But if you lack a trust SEC capable infrastructure in between there, uh, no problem. We can implement those secure group ACLs anywhere within that environment that supports trust SEC enforcement.
0: Okay, so it, from from our conversation today, it doesn't sound like there's a lot that you need to add into Identity Services Engine to enable Trustsec. It doesn't sound no. it doesn't sound like you need to do a lot of work from a like adding servers or uh, um, or honestly a lot of design um, work. It sounds like it's more of a, um, an, a a different option than doing downloadable ACLs as long as your hardware supports Trustsec.
1: That's, yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's, it's actually uh, much easier. Uh, in, in fact, if, if people are doing NAC for the first time and uh, are, are looking at, at doing Cisco's Identity Services engine, if there is any way that they can skip doing the downloadable ACLs and, uh, and, and VLAN-based approach, they will find that deploying trust secs actually easier in, in, in most cases. Um, it requires less overhead. You'll define groups. You'll define your secure group ACLs, you put them into a matrix, and then you provide some, um, you know, your authorization rules. And instead of applying auth profiles to that, you uh, you supply secure group tags, and that's it. Okay. I mean, so it's a piece of cake.
0: Now, um, I'm sure the people that will be listening will have an idea of what ICE is and the different personas and the nodes. Um, if I were to enable TrustSec today, not having done it yet, um, how would I go about doing that in uh, a my own environment, like let's say a lab environment.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I, I just got done doing it at home. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty slick. Um, <laughs> my, my wife and kids didn't like the change windows, but they'll, they'll get over it. Um,
0: you had to go through a CCB process, right? At home. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. You're going to do what to Netflix dad, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, honestly, the, the, you know, the first step is you're certainly going to stand up identity services engine and take care of a lot of the, uh, traditional, you know, connectivity stuff. You're going to associate it with Active Directory. Um, you're going to, you know, set up PKI. You're going to integrate it with anything else in the environment that might be an identity store or what have you. Um, so that's kind of your care and feeding, your umbilicals for, for ICE. Uh, the next step is is you're going to start associating it with each of the network devices um, that's going to participate. So that's really just a matter of setting up your, your AAA, you know, your your authentication, authorization, and accounting configurations on each of those devices. Um, there's, you know, some great documentation out there on the Cisco Spaces uh, communities page for Identity Services Engine. I heavily encourage people when they're looking at stuff like that to to dive into that because they've got a lot of these use cases covered. But you'll go through and you'll deploy a template to your devices, you know, basically pointing to ICE as your RADIUS server, um, setting up a couple of other attributes, explaining which interface you want to use for the communication, and away you go. Um, and then from there, the next step, you, you really are defining groups. So it comes with a bunch of groups out of the box, um, you know, as part of the, the default config. Uh, you, you know, most people don't end up using all of those or they end up just starting over because it's pretty easy to create your own groups. And, you, you know, those groups will be uh, source and destination groups. You, you know, you can have uh, employee talk to this server, uh, HR talk to that server, uh, so on and so forth. Those are the groups you define, and then you uh, build all of your ACLs. So maybe, you know, maybe whenever an employee comes on, we want them to, yeah, you know, use only ports 80 and 443 with this particular server. Uh, we'd create a downloadable ACL that could be invoked there, and then we build a matrix, and we say, hey, we, we want these guys talking to those guys at this time, you know, with these protocols. And that matrix is graphically represented within Identity Services Engine, it's you know sources on the on the vertical axis, uh, destinations across the top, and uh, very easy to read, very easy to troubleshoot, and very easy to monitor. Uh, once you've done all that, um, really, it's a matter of putting it, you know, figuring out how to get people into those groups, and that's where your typical authentication and authorization come into play. How do we prove who you are, and um, you know whether we trust you? That's the authentication, and then once we know that and we, and we trust that you are who you say you are what kind of privileges do we give you and that's you know where profiling and posture assessment and all that stuff comes into play and and like i said the result of that you know if you meet all these conditions and you're a member of employees we'll give you an employee tag that's that's really the authorization rule and once you've done that uh, you click a button that pushes the policy to all the switches and you're done you can monitor that all through your radius live logs um, you know right in ice and watch as people come on see what kind of results come up. Uh, there's extensive uh, reporting and troubleshooting capabilities built into Identity Services Engine both for traditional deployments and regular uh, you know uh, trustsec deployments that allow you to go through and see exactly what step of the process failed or provided the wrong result or the result you didn't know about and that drastically reduces the time to deploy and the time to deploy any new changes to your policies as you operate this in the future.
0: Now, that was a great uh, kind of uh, overview of how to deploy it, um, both ICE and TrustSec, like in a lab environment. Is, is there any, like, I know with ICE in my deployments, I usually traditionally, I traditionally do some sort of monitor mode deployment first, where it, for the people that may not understand what that is, it's a state where you configure monitor mode for a duration of time, and, and it will log the state of the environment and the devices, but it doesn't enforce anything. So you're not actually bringing um, a negative impact to the network and not bringing something down because it's not adhering to the policy. You're, you're logging it, you're getting the visibility, and then you can um, go ahead and enforce it at a different time once you've hit that threshold, then maybe you've ad- addressed those items that weren't complying accordingly.
1: Yep. Yeah. So the same concept exists here with TrustSec. Um, yeah. You actually gain a little bit here in that you're able to keep all of your classifiers in monitor mode, so that everybody gets an IP address. You know, it's 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 like the Oprah show. Everybody gets an IP. Everybody gets <laughs> a car. Um, but when they get on, they get an SGT. And while you might not be doing any enforcement or rejecting anybody at the access layer, um, you can enforce that SGACL at will upstream of that. So if you decide, okay, the SGTs are being assigned the way we like it, um, you know everybody's getting all of their care and feeding as they come onto the network. Now let's go ahead and enforce you can imp- implement those SGACLs elsewhere within the network and never let the access layer leave monitor mode. And so that's a, a really cool hybrid approach here. Wow that allows you the, the, the most flexibility. And, you know, as with any of these NAC deployments, you really want to, you know, ease into it. You want to make sure that you, you test and retest and and test again. And what this allows you to do is allows you to roll out uh, both Identity Services Engine in general and TrustSec in particular in a very phased approach so that uh, you're doing no harm to your users and their workflows and you're you're ensuring that before you take the next step, and tighten down enforcement or spread that enforcement across more areas within the network, that it's having the desired behavior and that uh, it isn't breaking anything in the process.
0: No, that, That's great. So you have that flexibility to be able to get it out there, get it visible on the environment, get that visibility um, and see what TrustSec would do. And then in the, depending on how you decide to enforce it, it seems like you have a lot of flexibility to enforce it at a different, different places in the network.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
0: So, um, is there anything else you want to kind of mention on the specific technology um, solution that we're discussing right now?
1: Uh, you know, with the exception of just making sure that, that we understand that, you know, this isn't just for people coming in with laptops and mobile, but certainly with the advent of Internet of Things in the last few years, you know, we're expecting 50 billion devices on the network by 2020. And um, I guess last year was the first time that they had more IoT devices. Uh, pull IP addresses, the new mobile devices, um, you know, registered to users. So we we finally hit that inflection point. And when you do that, it, it's important to have segmentation that can handle that without user interaction because a lot of those IoT devices don't have that. And it's a, also important to have a security approach in place that not only checks, you know, checks out, devices before they get on the network the first time, but it, it reserves the right to change its mind based on any intelligence it gathers from other uh, capabilities, whether it's a security in- event, and incident manager, a net flow collector, or what have you. And so that's, you know, another place we see TrustSec getting great use is in manufacturing and utilities because of that ability to handle, you know, all of these things with a consistent set of policies uh, that not only blend in the identity and the IP address, but also Characterize the device, check it, you know, check it, profile it, posture it, um, and, and even, you know, detect anomalous behavior before allowing it on or allowing it to continue to associate with the network.
0: Moving into the next item to discuss is really the technology solutions that um, might give us the same result, um, but might not be the best option um, when comparing to ICE and TrustSec. Um I think one of the first things we were discussing or had an idea was a VLAN-based approaches.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's where segmentation started. You know, everybody's used to learning in, in their CCNA or, you know, GNCIA or, or whatever the, the other associate level stuff is or, or Network Plus. It, when, you know, the first thing you can do to really reduce your, your failure domains um, is, is to VLAN things. And that's kind of every, everybody's entry into the segmentation biz. Uh, but as we're seeing, that that's really tough to scale, and uh, it's very manual, very static. And so while there's, um, you know, VLAN approaches out there that can be automated through things like Identity Services Engine or any of its competitors, um, that's typically not all everybody does um, because you, you still want to have some say as to what people on the same VLAN do. And so, um, you know, so typically we see that it, it doesn't scale well. It uh, can be a real bear to maintain, especially with the more dynamic environments out there. And it's a lot. It's a lot of overhead just to just a provision. Every time you stand up a new VLAN, you've got all those services, those essential network services that need to be cared for. You need to, you know, set up DHCP scopes and uh, inter VLAN routing and all that good stuff. So that 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 all adds to the complexity and makes it uh, makes it a very static and unforgiving sort of segmentation for very little true security benefit
0: yeah no i actually um for this this kind of approach here i actually had I have customers ask me to do this constantly, um, or ways to simplify what they currently have implemented. Where they have, you know, a, a, an L3 ACL, IP ACL applied on a VLAN interface, but they want to apply that ACL with some changes on 30 or 40 different sites. So, you know, the scale of that is hard to manage, and the ACL is not the same ACL at every site. It's it's a little different per site, and so now you're managing 50, 60 ACLs once again to 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 give you that that separation or that segmentation but it's not micro segmentation by no means it's just segmentation from one vlan to another vlan
1: right right absolutely and that we get a lot of customers uh, that will complain to us about how tough it is to manage you know extensive numbers of vlans and how they're running into vlan limitations of their access layer switches and you know what we want it's, it's kind of that hey doctor it hurts when i do this well don't do that <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> Change the approach, you know, and, and, uh, but that, and I understand the reluctance because VLANs are relied on for so many other things. And so, you know, it can be tough for people to understand that they can have their cake and eat it too if they use VLANs only for things that require VLANs. Um, you know, certainly uh, certain provisions within the data center, for instance. Uh, but they use SGTs over the top of that, um, you know, and, and TrustSec over the top of that to actually provide the more granular segmentation without blowing up their, their management workload.
0: Oh, that would be that. That that makes perfect sense when you compare the two, because it is a nightmare when you're doing a VLAN segmentation and you're trying to do three ACLs everywhere. Um, what's what's kind of the next uh technology that is thrown out there?
1: Well, we're starting to see uh, in and you know to varying degrees uh, a lot of vendors, uh, Cisco included, uh, looking at VXLAN as kind of that next step to VLANs, and that's you know to, certainly to overcome limitations of you know four thousand ninety six. Potential VLAN numbers and you know 250 or 100 supported by a switch, um, but VXLAN by itself, um, you know, really was never meant to be a security segmentation approach. And so this is a you know if if you see somebody that's offering that alone as, as their means of segmentation, it's not necess- You know they're not concerned with, um, you know they're not concerned primarily with security. They're concerned with. Uh, providing an overlay on a, on a much bigger network, so that tends to be very uh, popular in large environments, um, environments that may have five years ago considered running, you know, v, VRF light or, or some sort of you know MPLS derivative in their campus environments. Um, you know, a lot of big universities or research institutions, you know, might might be looking at that, uh, but it doesn't, you know, typically. Mesh with a lot of your automated network access control technologies, um, so that's really kind of a half-baked approach uh, from a security perspective. That if you're doing it, you're typically doing it with a lot of customization, uh, a lot of scripting, and uh, it's you know it's a big science project unto itself.
0: Yeah, I, I see it. Um, I actually see VXLAN more often than not. Like you said, in in kind of the higher ed locations, um, but when they're doing new installations or greenfield deployments, um, I don't see it as as often when they need to do like a brownfield deployment. And their business drivers are the same; they're still trying to segment the environment, even though that that not, not necessarily the the use case for VXLAN.
1: Right, right, and that's yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things that I, I work with territory customers, people you know that typically have between. 250 to 2,000 knowledge users, and that's a that's something that would be uh, very untenable for most of those customers, both from a cost of the equipment to support VXLAN, as well as uh, you know the complexity of of both integrating and operating that from a security perspective. So yeah, I'm with you there.
0: Um. So the next uh, topic that we kind of wrote down was what uh, virtual firewall and then EMM.
1: Yeah, and we've yeah, and we've seen. Uh, you know a couple of our competitors uh, work with us and, and with some success uh, one of the quirks with it is that it requires a presence on the endpoints and, and or it requires some other mechanism to enforce when those endpoints are incapable of supporting that so once again if we get back to IOT and um, you, know, <laughs> we, you know some people think IOT is not their problem but the chattiest and most lonely devices on anybody's networks are printers and, and we can pretty much consider those IOT Nobody patches them, nobody really operates them, and uh, they're just a security, you know, nightmare uh, waiting to rear their ugly heads here. So um, the virtual firewall or the mobility manager, um, you know, type of approach uh, is really limited to just those end user devices that are supported. And uh, it also requires that administrative presence and doesn't make a lot of provisions for guests and and stuff where maybe you don't have as much say as what ends up on that endpoint. Um, so that's you know that's that's the the cons against it. Uh, the benefits are really you know you could almost care less what the infrastructure is. Um, so you know a, a lot of the companies implementing this don't have you know they they have a very diverse set of brands in their infrastructure, and as a result, it, it might just be easier to, to bite the bullet and get a presence on endpoints because they might actually have less brands of endpoints than they would infrastructure devices. And so they'll go after that and and, and tackle that. Uh, but when you when you forego the infrastructure and you and you don't leverage the infrastructure to provide a lot of the enforcement or uh, even the sensing capabilities, that forces you into some potentially ugly or or costly architectural choices. Like what are you going to do for a span network? How are you going to pipe traffic back to be characterized? Because if you're not relying on your infrastructure to provide the enforcement, you're probably also not able to use the infrastructure. Uh, directly to help you sense what's going on and differentiate between different types of endpoints and where they're going and and how you're gonna enforce their behavior
0: so um, I have not actually seen this in production um, Could you kind of give me some use cases when this would be viable
1: so it it may be viable and I've seen it in a couple of local companies here one one that I worked at and another one that uh, my wife has worked at and uh, she's not an IT just disclaimer there. But uh, <laughs> you, you look at it; um, those those were very large, sprawling environments um, where the IT organization, rather than go with a strategic, you know, um, small number of vendors, went with a let's you know let's go low cost and and um, you know just bite the bullet operationally. Uh, went with a very diverse you know group of of infrastructure providers, and so they weren't able to provide a architecture based solution to this. Uh, but the one thing they did have control over was everybody had the same sort of laptop and they had strict, you know, strict desktop management capabilities that allowed them to deploy the virtual firewall capability to each of those devices running as a client, if you will. And so the the policies get pushed from the central management of that of that, um, you know, NAC solution out to the endpoints themselves. And the endpoints are in charge of enforcing their own behavior. Wow. So it can be, it can be interesting.
0: That sounds like a good use case for it. We mentioned it briefly uh, a couple minutes ago about MPLS and VRF flight. Um, do you see that a lot? It,
1: it typically uh, we see it in the tier of customers just above me, but I get enough exposure to to know that it is happening out there. And that's really, like I said, it's kind of about a you know five to five plus year old approach uh, to providing large scale segmentation. And it's not incompatible with Trustex, certainly, uh, but typically it's used for something else. So that's when you're using something that's multi-enclave. Um, you know, we, we see research institutions that are doing both academic and government-based stuff, for instance, that will implement this so that they're able to maintain, you know, whole distinct pipes, really, uh, of traffic, different neighborhoods that never shall mix, um, but using the same infrastructure. And uh, that that's a very effective approach there. But again, if we're talking about network access control and the types of problems TrustSec um, are trying to solve, that doesn't help with specific endpoint-based stuff or the mobility of those endpoints through an environment. And so, um, you know, we typically won't see this uh, deployed for that reason. Um, consequently, if if we, you know, at some point when people are are talked to uh, about uh, Cisco's software-defined access. It's actually using VRFs and TrustSec together to provide two layers of segmentation. You know, one that kind of keeps everybody that we know are supposed to be separate. Again, that multi-tenant, multi-enclave sort of approach I just talked about. And then whereas TrustSec actually polices the behavior within each of those VRFs to ensure that you've got the proper uh, secure groups. Uh, We call them actually scalable group tags once you move there. Not to confuse things, (laughs) but because that SGT scales so well and it's so... Um, so helpful in addressing a lot of problems throughout the environment. We're starting to actually layer on things like quality of service and application profiles and stuff like that to it because, it, you know, that tag is just that. It's a tag, and once you've got that, uh, you can really use it to implement a lot of cool things, security, you know, but uh, certainly, but a lot of other things can be layered over the top of that using that same tagging scheme.
0: Yeah, so that that that's kind of a good segue into like you know. Um, another another show altogether, software-defined access and, and the kind of the implications of that. Um, but uh, um, what you mentioned there is that you do get the, you get the segmentation um, with an MPLS uh, going in or VRF Lite between the different VRFs and whatnot. But you don't get the micro segmentation. There's some some negative aspects um, with that. If you really need that micro segmentation and that that full policy-driven control, again MPLS and VRF Lite are um, traditionally more, uh, manual to implement versus, uh, a policy driven approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're starting to get into very different skill sets that implement both, right? Exactly. And, and we, you know, micro segmentation has been one of those things everybody's been tossing around as, as, you know, you know, part of their BS bingo board here. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the campus side of things actually led this. You know, network access control has always been about trying to get that segmentation um, at the endpoint level so that no matter where the endpoint is, you get a policy enforced that, you know, is is commensurate with the person's privileges, their place in the network, and the device they're on. And that that needs to be at the endpoint level. It can't be something that's more macro like a VRF where, you know, these 400 ports are associated with VRF, you know, blue or what have you, you actually need to have the ability to get granular and talk about the endpoint. And that's why I think a lot of these other approaches, you know, the VLANs, uh, VLAN only approach or VLANs with DACLs even, or the the VRF light approach are, are inflexible when you're talking about the way people work today, which is, you know, highly mobile, highly flexible, work from any place, anywhere, anytime. And when they do that, you need policies that not only instantiate as you need them, but clean up after themselves when they leave.
0: So one of the things you mentioned in, in this kind of section on MPLS, and we didn't touch base earlier on it, I don't think, was the mobility benefit you get with using a policy-driven approach versus the, the lack of mobility you get with any of these other solutions we've mentioned.
1: Right, right. And it's, uh, it's not even just so much, hey, I plugged in here, okay, I'm moving to a conference room, i my own plug in over here, but it's when you go from a desktop where you're plugged in to a conference room where you're wireless to home when you're on VPN. It's having a consistent policy engine that drives the policy across all of those different tiers of access, no matter where you reside in the network. And more importantly, doesn't require somebody to go in and you know, deprovision, if you will, or clean up after you when you've left. And so that having the policy follow you actually reduces the workload to your network devices, so that they're able to handle a more dynamic mobility environment without that burden of having all these, uh, you know, like I said, vestigial, uh, you know, acles left over from you know three months ago or six months ago, and uh, that's a that's a real key piece of getting more out of your, of your equipment. Here is is being able to go back and allow something to automatically. You know, stand up and draw down all of your policies as needed rather than you know, forcing humans to go back up and clean up after it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, again, we touched based on intent-based networking, and I'm a big fan of intent-based networking. Um, let's forget about who's got a solution and who doesn't. But I think intent-based networking really is going to change Change the world and behind that is that policy engine in some fashion. And I think that that's obvious with Cisco's ICE and Cisco's TrustSec um approaches to the policy engine side of the house. Um those are key components, any type of intent based networking in the future.
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean it's uh, it really is I think um and the the thing is TrustSec's been in place now for a few years and um uh you know, it's taken a little while to trickle down to my customers, but, you know, the ones that are implementing it now are seeing huge benefits from that. So, you know, really, I was surprised, you know, I, I was surprised that it took this long for people to get into it, but I tend to lean a little forward. And, I'm, you know, fortunately for me, I, I don't have responsibility for an operational network, but uh, the, the customers that have taken the plunge have been really, really happy with it. And what we've seen is it's allowed them to integrate a lot more of their security devices into the solution uh, you know Cisco and otherwise we have customers with checkpoint firewalls that are implementing trust sec wow. and uh, using you know using secure group tags with with uh, checkpoint firewalls for instance um, you know we've got a lot of people certainly implementing CMS and and um, you know doing things with NetFlow. Uh, certainly Stealthwatch is a fantastic help there but that you know getting that visibility and having that centralized control gives you all kinds of options for integrating other solutions and making them all part of this, you know, dynamic and, and automated policy delivery engine that, that ICE provides as the centerpiece of TrustSec.
0: Yeah, so um, real quick, uh, just to get some idea, it sounds like this is um, not not vendor agnostic isn't the right word I'm trying to say. It's more of a... Um, um, business vertical agnostic solution. Like this is something that could fit in any real business, but could you give us some some high-level examples of some of the the verticals that you've designed solution uh, a trustsec solution for?
1: Yeah, yeah. Certainly uh, seen a lot of this in healthcare um, who have a lot of different concerns. You know, they're currently, certainly uh, concerned with things like um, personally identifying information, patient information, you know, and segmenting that from, you know, guests that might be out in the lobby or what have you. But they're also concerned with maintaining IoT separation because they have an extensive number. You know, every infusion pump has an IP address and and a Wi-Fi radio, and, and very rarely is anybody running around and patching them. Uh, MRI machines and all that stuff—they all have IPs. So maintaining separation between the IoT environment, the facilities environment with all the badge readers and IP cameras, you know, the the, the guest patient network. And the actual, you know, mission critical part, you know, the, the patient data, the imagery, all that stuff is very key in healthcare. care. Um, on the financial side, you know, we talked a little bit about PCI DSS, but a lot of financials, you know, deal with multiple levels of security there as well. And so we've seen TrustSec implemented uh, w- with great success there uh, in, in maintaining, you know, a different level at, of access for things that are lobby connected and, and perhaps not always attended you know, um, uh, versus having people in the back office working mortgages or dealing with, um, you know, sensitive information, um, you know, for for loan applications and stuff like that. Uh, On the manufacturing side, you know, I've seen it both from equipment and, uh, you know, device manufacturing, uh, but I even have yogurt companies in in my patch. Um, We've got a couple of companies that uh, are in the food business, and, um, you know, you'd be surprised how much IoT happens in a production line uh, for, for dairy, for instance, and how much uh, concern there is there because if they're off a couple degrees or if somebody messes with you uh, particular you know, particular, um, you know uh, uh, ingredient list or something like that they can cause havoc, cause sickness, and really you know uh, r- you know ruin the reputation of that particular company. So we really see this across a lot of different verticals. Um, you know uh, certainly seeing it in education. You know, we talked about differences between, you know, students and in different levels of research. Uh, That would be a great application for it. Um, We've got a couple of legal firms that are just starting to dip their toe and and go through the motions of a design exercise here to understand it. And and they're doing it based on uh, the need to be able to firewall and segment different parts of their firms uh, to ensure that they don't have conflicts of interest and what have you. And so, you know, this can really help tackle a lot of those sorts of approaches or uh, those sorts of concerns.
0: Those are great examples. I appreciate uh, you coming on the show and, and kind of giving those to us and where you've designed it and it's been deployed and, and whatnot. Um, so one last kind of question, and I'm going to leave it to you after that. Um, let's let's assume someone on the uh, in the audience, someone that's listening, um, has no idea what TrusSEC is, hasn't touched it. Um, how would they get some real world experience, um, real life experience with TrusSEC?
1: That's a great question, and it's gotten easier and easier as time's gone on. I've been at uh, Cisco for four years, uh, but prior to that, one of my best uh, learning resources was uh, Cisco Live.com. It used to be six, ciscolive365.com, but Cisco Yeah, you, know, you can go on and watch the last four years of Cisco Live uh, presentations. You can download them, uh, pour over them. Uh, Cisco Live US delivers, uh, I think, over 700 sessions every year. So that's a ton of data, and TrustSec, identity services engine more generally. And certainly with last, you know, this this past month, um, the, the advent of software-defined access, SD access, there's a ton of information there. So that's great for helping read up on it. Uh, from a labbing perspective, um, you can work with your Cisco account teams and your partners. Uh, they can actually schedule what we call D Cloud demos, uh, where we have, you know, sandbox environments or guided and scripted demos that you're able to walk through. So you get exposure you get some hands-on uh, with the actual product and, and are able to walk through different things, whether it's a guest workflow or BYOD or rapid threat containment or what have you. So those are all accessible. And, um, you know, kind of, I think for those who are, are like me and, and really need to run it at home and put their family through the pain and suffering. I'm one of those. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? Uh, no pain, no gain. Um, we The image, if, if you have CCO access, um, you can certainly gain access to the image uh, with the assistance of your account team and download it, uh, instantiate it. And when you turn it on, I believe it's a 60-day demo license is automatically activated. Um, you know, it's, With our products, it's typically between 45 and 90 days, so it's somewhere in there. But you, you get free access uh, you know, to it for up to 100 endpoints uh, and all features turned on so that you can play with it, use it for qualifications, certification, all that good stuff. So there's a lot of lot of avenues here that can help you get access to it, and there. And lastly, I believe this guy actually works for the same company you do. But there's a website called LabMinutes.com, free commercial for whoever it is. Great, great website. He does a lot of little um, nugget-sized, you know, five to fifteen-minute chunks where he talks about every feature. And with ice, I believe he's got 148 videos right now. Yeah. So a very good resource. Very. Uh, very awesome, very well done. And if you step through that, by the time you get done, you're a you're an ice and trust set guru. So.
0: Yeah, Metha. Um, I I'm not going to even try to pronounce his last name. I'm sure he would uh, give me a, um, a punch in the gut. But um, he uh, <laughs> Metha. He works for E Plus with me. Um, he also is in the kind of the same role, lead technical architect. And you can find all his stuff at labminutes.com. Um, great videos. I believe some of them are for free, and then some of them you do have to pay for.
1: Actually, I think, yeah, they're all free, but if you want to download them and stream them offline, that's where you pay.
0: So, yep. Pretty easy model there, but he's got some great content. I've used it in the past um, when studying something or trying to learn something on the fly. Um, I know a lot of people in the industry that are using it. So that's a great plug for for Metha, um, unknowing to him, of course. So um, do you have any last minute kind of uh, comments, concerns, um, suggestions for the listeners?
1: No, you know, I, I really appreciate being able to come on the show with you here, Mike. It's it's been uh, fun talking to you about it, and and you know, hopefully, everybody's got a little bit of excitement around TrustSec. I, I heavily encourage everybody to take a look at it. Um, you know, it solves a lot of problems and really reduces the strain uh, on you and your teams, um, and, and a vast majority of our of our customers. So, um, you know, I highly highly encourage everybody to, to work with their Cisco account teams to. To learn more about
0: it. Well, I appreciate it. I know for me personally, I wanted to clear some of the, the knowledge or the, the mud or FUD surrounding TrustSec um, in, in the, kind of the community itself. So hopefully this episode kind of shows what the benefits are of TrustSack. Uh, hopefully it shows you know there's not as much work going from a traditional ICE route to TrustSec. So if you're already running ICE today, TrustSack isn't that far of a leap. Um, and it shows that you can run TrustSec without having all your hardware support it. Um, there are ways to get it out there and get it implemented, and, and there are ways to make life easier to manage the solutions that you have. So where, where can the, the audience kind of find you and engage you after the episode?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm actually... Uh... I'm semi-active on Twitter, off and on, as uh, work and family schedules allow. But uh, at, at Mikey McPhee um, on uh, on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn, and um, if anybody's interested in learning some basics about uh, pen testing and stuff, I've got a couple of books out through the Packt Networks uh, or Packet, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, one on uh, both both around Kali Linux, one around general pen testing, and and the other around. Uh, Cali, uh, for, for web penetration testing. So,
0: yeah. So just a uh, real quick, that was, um, at Mikey underscore McPhee, um, on Twitter, um, uh, Mike and, uh, Mike dash McPhee on uh, LinkedIn and then your publications, you have one called a uh, penetration testing with Raspberry Pi second edition. I'll have the link in the show notes. And then you have another one called mastering Cali Linux for web penetration testing. Again, I'll have that one in the show notes as well. Sounds great. Again, Mike, thanks so much. I appreciate it. And um, hopefully have you on the show again in the near future.
1: All right. Sounds good, Mike. Thank you.
0: Hey, Ziglitz. That's going to close out this episode. I want to make sure we we send a huge thanks to Mike McPhee for joining us today and sharing his experiences and his knowledge. Um, he, he brings a lot of understanding of specifically in this episode, Cisco TrustSec and kind of the underlying technology within Cisco TrustSec, where it fits where it doesn't fit as well and then also where it's going to go within software-defined access. He really really brings a lot of that to the table and I was we're very fortunate enough for him to be here today so I really thank him very much for joining us and spending the time to record this episode. It really means a lot to me and and hopefully it means a lot to you too as the audience. I really appreciate each and one, every one of you for listening to the episodes and being part of this community. If you if you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world real world context, let us know. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching for ZigBits. You can send us an email to feedback at zigbits.tech, and you can leave us a voicemail at 617 913 Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide you with real-world context around technology. Bye for now.